We are in uh, our Redemptive Edge series here uh, at Providence, and last week we had uh, Show Baraka with us to talk about art and vocation and using our voice for justice. This week we have Charlotte Evans. Next week we'll have Patty Pell. Uh, she is coming to us from Denver Seminary, t talking to us about biblical models of justice, especially as it applies to how we use our resources. We live in the richest country in the world. And uh, if we just, I think, had a biblical view of our resources, it would solve the problems of the world. And so Patty's thought about this her whole life, uh, and she'll be speaking to us in the morning and doing a panel uh, in the evening as well. For today, we are honored to have Charlotta Evans with us. Um, I actually was thinking through this, and I forgot when we first met. Uh, but I, was, I had met Charlotta at an event and briefly heard her story. Then I read it on the front page of the Denver Post, uh, and I was like, you know, I want to get to know this woman more because she has the heart of Jesus. Uh, and then, you know, but you always think, I need to, I need to, we need to go have coffee. You ever have those conversations? Let's get together for coffee, and then you never do. Um, but it was actually somebody who came through our prison aftercare program. Uh, when he sat down and told me his story, um, he told me that he had just got out of prison after spending 10 years in there. Um, for actually supplying uh, the guns uh, for the eventual homicide of uh, your little biscuit. And uh, so at that time, I called Charletta. Well, I actually talked to the young man, uh, Willie Mosley, and I said, hey, Willie, I said, uh, you know, he had this huge guilt uh, on his shoulders. And I said, have you ever apologized for what you've done? And he said, no, I don't know how to get a hold of the mom, and I said, well, I, I know her, and uh, uh, called Charletta, and she was like, bring him over, and uh, we sat in her kitchen uh, where she heard um, the confession and offered forgiveness to this uh, young man. I was on the phone with him, by the way, this week. Um, but there's been recent developments in uh, Charlotta's story, uh, the, um, and I'll, I'll let her kind of tell the story, but uh, just recently in the last six months, um, the primary uh, perpetrator of the crime was released, and uh, they've been walking a road, and if you read the, or saw the news story, uh, Calvin, you were there too, I believe, uh, walking with uh, him. Uh, and she's been, been this biblical model of what it's like to be deeply wounded uh, and then deeply forgive. And by the way, this is a message that's not universally loved in our culture. And uh, understandably, there's deep harm. But if you even remember to the Charleston shootings and the family that immediately forgave the shooter and the outcry against that family as if they were... Uh, you know, short-circuiting the process that this um, criminal, this uh, killer, uh, had perpetrated on, this, on the community and on the family. So I think in the kingdom of God, it is not over here where we're like, uh, you know, justice to the max and ultra-punitive stuff. And we're also, we actually believe that you don't just let people go scot-free. Where is this middle ground where we actually listen to the pain that happens in lives 
uh, but we don't fundamentally have a justice system that's punitive, but one that is rather restorative. And uh, this idea of restorative justice really is fairly new, even in American society, probably the last 20 years, uh, and started penetrating systems, social work, schools, um, in the last probably 10 years. And Charlotte has been a, a key voice for that. So I want you to listen to her story uh, this morning. She's not a stranger to Providence. Um, and then tonight, we'll have a, a time to ask her questions in a panel at 5.30. And we'll uh, have a panel ask her questions for about a half an hour. Then uh, we'll let the audience ask questions for about half an hour. Then we'll have some uh, refreshments uh, afterwards. And on the panel tonight, I'm happy to announce we will have uh, the famous Felipe and Monica and uh, their two daughters. Uh, obviously, they lost their son in a shooting in Juarez, which is a, honestly why they're sitting with us today is through that outreach, uh, through that difficult time. So we will uh, have a warm family time tonight talking about what this means. But for now, let's welcome Charlotte Evans to Providence. Do we have a video to show? Do you want us to show them the video? Okay. Is it the Okay. Good morning. I'm going to remove this <laughs> masterpiece. I would like to, if I could have a Bible, please. I, I didn't bring mine, son. I didn't. Uh... Thank you so much. I want to um, give thanks this morning to um, God of my salvation and uh, want to honor the pastor, Pastor Jason Jantz, and his wife, dear wife. Thank you so much for having me. God bless you. You have a beautiful Ephesus here. And uh, it's just amazing to uh, see the growth and development of God's people. And when we don't give up, <laughs> when we keep on moving forward. And so I thank God for that beautiful emphasis. Um, I want to introduce my son, Calvin Hurd, who came to support me, uh, my best friend, and uh, a lot of things I could not accomplish if it wasn't for the support of my son. And so God bless you, son, and thank you. Yeah. You could take off your secret weapon, too, if you want to. <laughs> So everybody can see your handsome face. Yeah. All righty. Um, I uh, was asked to share today uh, my journey, Quezon's story. And um, I'm going to come reference out of a scripture today 
um, which is Romans 12 and 17. Uh, Romans 12 and 17 says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And I'm going to continue reading. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. The key verse here is, if possible, excuse me, the key verse is 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. I wanted to share my journey based on that word of God. The, I'm a walker, I will take my seat shortly, but I'll stand as long as I can. <laughs> the human nature really puts us in a opposition to the word of God all the time. So we, to not pay evil for evil is second nature if we have not received the divine nature. So to react is a first reaction of that old flesh. 26 years ago, I had my surviving son was six years old. My baby boy was three years old. And it was four days before Christmas. Calvin's birthday is Christmas Eve. And we were getting ready to celebrate Calvin's birthday and Christmas. Single mom loving the Lord, doing mission work. And we received a phone call. It was a Thursday night that we, Thursday afternoon we received this phone call at 2 p.m. from my niece that's 17 years old. And she said there was a drive-by shooting here in the Park Hill area. And would I come and get her out of harm's way? So her daughter was three years old, same age as my caisson. And when she called, of course, we're going to respond to family out of obligation and love. So when I made the call, or she made the call, she said there was a drive-by shooting. So I said, I'll come down this evening and I'll pick up your daughter and any other kids that are in the home. And we'll bring them back because we're having Calvin's birthday. And then I'll get them back before Christmas. 
So that evening, we all got in the car, my boys in the back seat, another 17-year-old niece of mine and a 20-year-old cousin, and we were in her car. So we were moseying down to Park Hill. Grew up in Aurora, and uh, so when I got to Park Hill, the uh, there was snow on the ground, so when I found the location I was looking for, I pulled up and it, was, it appeared to be a driveway, but it was actually covered in snow and was just grass. But I pulled directly in front of the window in this, at, at this duplex. When I pulled up, I looked back, my boys are asleep in the back seat, and my cousin is listening to the music, and uh, I go in the house, and when I got in there, it was it was a strange look because there was all just little children in there and about seven teenage girls and all these kids. And I'm like, they look too comfortable for me. There was a drive-by shooting there the night before. So I said, well, what, what is the, um, if this was, if there was a drive-by shooting, because now I'm in disbelief that this actually happened. So I said, so if there was a drive-by shooting here last night, where are the bullet holes? So I stepped to the blinds, and she pulled them black, and she showed me where here, hit there, hit there. I said, oh, okay. I put the coat on my three-year-old niece and uh, began to step out. Soon as I began to step out of the home, shots rung out. Got on the floor. Everyone hit the floor. I was close to the door because we were on our way out the door. Just as soon, a hush came over. Everybody checked themselves, and no one had been hit but one person in the house, and the bullet went through the sleeve of a down coat. And uh, from what I find out, they did graze her arm. But my cousin came to the door, and my family name is Bunny. She come to the door, Bunny, they shot up the car. And I said, they shot up the house too. So I get out, I grab my three-year-old niece, run to the car. We get in the car, drive off. And in the back seat, my 17-year-old niece that went down with us began to check my boys. Calvin, she checked you, Calvin. You said I was okay. You said I'm okay. She goes to check Kason and she goes to pick him up, he's not responding. So she grabs him and says, oh, Kason's bleeding. So she's screaming in the back. We're two blocks away from where this incident happened. I'm not driving this time, I'm on the passenger side holding my three-year-old niece. So we saw some people out front, had to throw the car in park because my cousin could not stop the car. She was screaming out of control. I jumped out of the car, went to the back seat, grabbed my case on, and he's still breathing. So I'm walking with him, I put him on my show, I put him over me and I'm holding him and I'm saying, we're gonna make it big guy. We're gonna make it, we're walking around in the grass at this front of these people's home. When my niece Makila ran into the house and called the family, called the church family, called 911. As I'm standing there with Kason in my arms, I'm noticing that his tongue is to the side. 
And so I'm still looking straight at his little face and I kept wanting to move his tongue over so he could keep breathing. Never once did I take him out of my arms. Never once did I see where he was shot, anything. But he's still breathing. Time went by, few minutes, few seconds. And here comes the paramedics through the door. When the paramedics ran through the door, <laughs> Kason took his last breath in my arms. I handed Kason over to the paramedics. They laid his little body down on the, on the carpet. They put a tube in his mouth. I said, are you gonna revive him? And they said, yes, we're gonna try. They took him out. And when I looked down on my clothes, I was covered in his blood from the collar to the hem of my dress, the whole front of me. And all I could think about is, where's Calvin? And I said, I need something to cover up with because I need to get to Calvin. And they gave me, not by happenstance, but they handed me a comforter and I wrapped it around me and I ran outside and there Calvin stood uh, in the standing there and I walked up to him and I said, Calvin, I said, boo, I called him boo then. <laughs> he wouldn't want me to call him boo now. <laughs> It'd be a little awkward. <laughs> I said, boo, my sons, I taught my sons, the younger to reverence the older. I taught my son things above their years so that they would know the things of God, so that they would know how to respect one another, how they would know how to respect women. And I let them know I cannot teach you how to be a man. I can only teach you how to treat a woman. And this is how I talk to my six-year-old and my three-year-old. So when this happened to Kason, I walked up to Calvin and I said, somebody hurt Biscuit. And we don't know who did it, son. We don't know who did it. But only thing we know is we have each other and we have God. And he looks up at me and he says, okay, mama. And we my family showed up and they all went to the hospital. They took Calvin with them. I had to go to the police station, myself, my cousin, and the other relatives, even the one that called me. So we were at the police station for two hours. And the reason why they took us because they knew something that I did not. And that was that they were not able to revive Kason. Even though he took his last breath in my arms, even though he had bled his, all of his little blood out over me, I still did not think he was going to leave me. I gave my life to Christ when I gave birth to Kason. Kason was a gift to me for me to change my life and the direction I was going in. I grew up in church, but I went astray. And God gave Kason to me. So I made a vow to God, you get me out of this hospital. You raise me up off of this deathbed. Kason was at risk. I was at risk. 
I will take my boys to church. I will live for you. And that's what he did. He raised me up. He healed my body. And he healed Kason. And we, I followed what I told God I would do. So there was no way that Kason would be gone. <laughs> you know, that's unheard of. Bad things don't happen to good people or Christians. So there I was sitting in the police station and I found myself bargaining with God. God, even if he's a vegetable, let him live. Oh God, I'll do this, I'll do that. Oh God, let him be here. Selfish prayers. Two hours later, they came, victim assistance, and they said to me bluntly, Kason is dead. They don't beat around the bush because they want you to know the reality of it. I thought it was pretty cruel that they laid it on me like that, but it was a reality. And my first thoughts of my grieving process had already begun because I had started the bargaining before they even told me he was gone. So as a mother, my natural instincts begin to react to his absence. And I had begun to bargain. And then anger came over me. And then denial. I felt all those things right there, sitting at that brown desk in that white covered wall covered room where it felt so hollow and empty. I wanted to turn the desk over. I walk out of the, uh, I hear through the corridor, I hear my cousin Reese, who that was Kason's first words was Reese. So he was so close to my cousin. They got to her after they got to me, the victim assistants, and told them, told her bluntly, Kason's dead. I hear her yelling out over the, over the, uh, at the, um, at, in the police station, all of a sudden, a strength came over me, like I have to get to her. She's falling apart. And I got up, and I went, and she said, Bunny, he's gone. Kason's gone. I grabbed her. I said, okay. I know they told me, and we got to make it through this now. And she's just falling apart. We get to the hospital. I walk into the hospital, and... The lines are walled with family and friends, and they're all looking at me. And when I walked in, they start whispering. And what they were whispering was, does she know? Does she know? The look on my face and the countenance on my face, they did not think I knew. My brother walked up to me and said, do you know of what happened? I said, yes. You know Kason's gone. I said, yes. He turns around and tells them she knows. They all sighed in relief, so they didn't have to be the one to tell me. He said, you got to get to your sister. She's not doing good at all. My sister, when I saw her, I wrapped my arms around her. She was shaking out of control. She stopped instantly. They told me afterwards that when I walked in the hospital that I had this glow over me. And evidently, God came in when I was at the police station <laughs> and covered me. 
And it, oh, hallelujah. And it was a glory cloud over me. That's how I reference it, a glory cloud. So here we are at the hospital. I'm going to take a seat. Here we are at the hospital, and I hope you could see. Can they see? Okay, thank you. They were all there. We hung out there. Um, my bishop was there, and we left the hospital around 11 30-ish. And I remember when I got to the house, I went to my mother's. I didn't go to my own home. I never returned back to my old home. And um, I wanted to get away from everybody because it was just overwhelming. I was just in disbelief. So I went to the bathroom where I figured that's the best way to hide, where a place to hide. No one's gonna bother me here. <laughs> so I went into the bathroom, and while I'm in the bathroom, I'm hearing my mother in her room praying, God dispatch the angels to find out who killed my baby. Send your angels. And I said, God, I don't even care who did it. Did this really happen? And I'm sitting there, and I found myself in agony. I'm moaning in agony, like, oh, my God, did this really happen? So all of a sudden, I feel a presence in the bathroom with me. And I hear a voice on the inside and the outside of me. And it came as a question and a suggestion. And I'm hearing, will you forgive as if to say, have you considered forgiving? And I said, God, is that you? Yes, I'll forgive. Of course I'll forgive. And I just sit there and I said, wow, these must be terrible, awful people. If God is asking me to forgive and we don't know who they are, they have to be horrible. Wow. I said, yes, God, I'll forgive. And I'm just sitting there in my thoughts and in my and talking to God. And I get up. And uh, I was able to rest that night. And I saw a vision of Kason before I went to sleep. And it was his little face in the house that he took his last breath. And he was at the ceiling. And he said, Mommy, here I am, Mommy. Here I am. I'm up here. And so when he took his last breath, he ascended, and he was right there in that home, and he was looking at me the whole time. <laughs> so I saw that vision, and I was able to rest. Well, at the time, it was, uh, it was the uh, Rocky Mountain News. The reporter came the following morning. So this is Friday morning. He came in, and he said, well, Charletta, has anyone called? Has the district attorney's office called? Has anybody turned in the fact of who done this? I said, we haven't heard anything. But one thing I do know is that I forgive. 
And he says, huh? <laughs> what do you mean? I said, well, I got a visitation last night at midnight. <laughs> and I know I heard a voice of God, and I forgive. And he's like, how do you forgive when you just said they don't know who did this? I said, I don't know, but I just know I do. Sunday morning, it was on the front page of the news. Mother of slain toddler forgives and no one's been apprehended. That was the beginning of my journey of God stepping in my business and in my hardship. He stepped in without me asking him. He stepped in and comforted me before how much I knew I needed comforting. And he put a glory cloud upon me. So here we are. They're looking for these people. Calls are coming into the district attorney's office. 2,500 calls, they call me and say. We've had 2,500 calls. We had one particular call that tipped everything off. It was an old black lady in Globeville that said, if they don't return my pit bull puppies, I'm going to tell that they killed that baby. That was the call that cracked the case. They found out who these guys were. Three days later, they were all apprehended. The driver, 16 years old. The two shooters, 15-year-olds. They had broken to a home in Montbello where the family had been on vacation. The keys were hanging behind the door. They stole the car. They stole a gun out from under the bed. It was a handgun with bullets not locked up. Never had been used. So they apprehended them. They found out which bullet came from which gun to determine which one of these kids killed Kason. So we had three teenagers tried as adults. They said, we're going to use these kids as examples. This was 1995, December 21st, the tail end of COIN, the summer of violence. Which, mind you, we have exceeded that within the last four years. We've exceeded the violence within our communities in our inner city of deaths and gun possession of teenagers. We've exceeded that by 14%. So, the DA set me down and they said, we're going to use this main shooter as an example. And we're going to give him life without the possibility of parole. We're going to try him as an adult. And I was like, wow, okay. I was taken back because I didn't think that kids can go to big boys prison. I thought he would go to a juvenile place. So I said, okay, if they would have said he's going to go to a juvenile facility till he's 21, I would have said, okay, because I didn't know. But they said, we're going to use him as an example. So I said, okay. 
So they tried Raymond Johnson as a, an adult at 15 years old and, and, and was going to sentence him to life without the possibility of parole. Same as his co-defendant that was shooting, but he did not kill Kason. So they stacked about nine charges on Raymond Johnson. Child abuse, the whole thing. They gave him, they gave him everything that he deserved. So here comes the pretrial hearing. The pretrial hearing, I step into the courtroom and there's this kid standing across the corridor in shackles with this jerry curl. And I looked and I said, is that him? He's a baby. And he turns towards me. And when he turns toward me, I saw a vision. His chest opens up, and I saw his heart. And his heart was full of compassion and tenderness. The DAs told me he was a hardened criminal. These other kids wouldn't have done this if it wasn't for him. He's the notorious gang member leader that is ruthless. And when I had that vision, it didn't match up. And I said, God, what am I seeing? Is it coming from me or is it coming from him? I didn't understand. So I walk out of that courtroom from that pretrial hearing and just pondering, such as Mary, <laughs> pondering it all. So everything began to come to me. The pieces begin to come together. The confirmation of the forgiveness that my heart and the confession from my mouth there was an evidence and a witness that I was looking at this kid through the eyes of Christ. And when I saw him, God showed him to me how he sees him. And from that point, we were knitted together spiritually from me to him, from him to me. And it was like, it was, it was knitted and engraved in my heart and spirit, this young man. So, we went through the court trials. We, nine months of three trials. Now mind you, the glory cloud rested on me for an entire year. When Kason passed on the 21st, December 21st, 1995. Calvin's birthday still had to happen. We had Calvin's birthday on December 24th. We had Christmas on December 25th. Then we had to bury my little Kason on the 28th of December. The glory cloud rested upon me. And I was able to be sustained by God. 
in that whole year, I had been a stay-at-home mom. And I went and got a job. I don't remember how I got it. <laughs> um, Begin to think about what I need to do and be present for my surviving son and begin to take the processes of, 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 of grief and go through those stages. And my model was to heal well. Not just to heal, but to heal well so that I could be present for Calvin. I didn't want to fade out on him because it was just us. So I begin to go through the process and the forgiveness is what equipped me to be able to grieve, embrace it, not have malice, hate, revenge, resentment, or want cruelty toward those that caused harm to me. God sealed me, and I call it the miracle of forgiveness of grace. He rested that upon me, and he gave me room to heal well without those thoughts of cruel and harsh punishment. And when we went through some of the trials, the driver, one of my brothers that had experienced prison time, he stood up in the courtroom and talked to the judge so that the driver would not get the harsh sentence. And he began to talk to him and say, I've been there. And these are kids. And he turned over all state's evidence. So let's give him a break. He was facing 63 years. It was reduced down to 16 years. When my brother kept saying, don't give him that much time. I remember my body and my spirit was trying to be at one with this request that my brother was saying. And I remember sitting there in the courtroom and my hand went up like this. And that was my surrender to what he was saying. But I felt the warfare with inside, inside of me, not wanting any leniency. But I remember my hand just went up like, God, I'm in agreement with what you're doing. And everything was so strategic. I remember every time I left a trial, I would go to my parents' house because I had support. I had great support, church family and family. I went to my mother's house. Every time I left a trial, I would go to the basement. I would pray and thank God. Then I'd go talk to my dad. So I made sure I wouldn't talk to anybody until I talked to God. Then I'd go talk to my dad. You could come sit right up here up front, right up here with your husband. Yes. <laughs> And my grandbaby, yes. <laughs> Hi, baby. Hi, baby. <laughs> Thank you. You want to?
to see me with grandma? Then you're going to go back with dad. And you can sit here with grandma. <laughs> you sit right here with grandma. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Good morning. Okay, praise God. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I did it in that order. And this was a process of me healing well that God strategically walked me through. Every step of grief, every step, and the one that at that time they had not, they, they had not added that to the science of grieving, and that was guilt. If they would have asked me, I would have told them <laughs> that guilt was the most severe one because our children trust us. And for me to travel with my six-year-old and my three-year-old down to Park Hill, oh my God, the guilt. I had to walk through it step by step. So now here we are. We went through the trials. They were sentenced. They were off to prison. I started a gang prevention work in Arapahoe County. I felt pretty good about myself. I forgave. I was giving back in the, with the kids doing the gang prevention. Felt pretty good. But here comes God again. How about this? <laughs> How about it? <laughs> 2005. Here I am confronted by legislation. They want to change the laws. They said, we want to try to uh, give a lesser sentence to these lifers. And I said, well, here's the only thing about that. If you give them a chance, what about the others? They would feel like they got a pass to, to commit such crimes and get away with it. So it would be a slap on the wrist, so I don't think so. So that year, the bill did not pass in 2005. They came back again in 2006, and they said, we want to try to do this again. And I wasn't interested. And so I felt like they were tucked away in prison where they belong. I'm giving back to the community. Life is good. I have no malice against no one. And uh, I have a son that I have to make sure I'm present for. And that was my focus. 2009, I began to get bombarded by the Holy Spirit. I ran into Raymond Johnson's grandmother at the food bank where I would see her often and we would say hello and go about our way. This particular time I saw her and she was there and she didn't speak to me this time. She didn't speak to me. I said hello and she normally would say hello. This time she wouldn't say anything to me. I'm like what's wrong? Maybe she doesn't know who I am. You know, I'm the one that forgave. <laughs> you know, I'm the one that forgave after all, you know. I shouldn't be speaking to you. Do you understand that? <laughs> so I say, I say that to her. And uh, I, I didn't say that to her, but I say, <laughs> I say that within my mind. And I walk up to her and I said, I'm Charletta. She goes, I want my boy home. I say, what is she talking about? And I just walked away. Remember I told you, everything I say, they put it on the front page of the news. 
when I said I did not want to give a second chance, it was on the front page of the news at this particular time, and she's seen that. that why, that's why she didn't speak to me. But she said, I want my boy home. I hop into the truck after I loaded up the stuff from the food bank. I said, God, what is this all about? I only forgave these people because you told me. You asked me, and I said, yes. I argued with God for 45 minutes. God, what is this? These people act like that I killed somebody in their family. She didn't want to speak to me. She's telling me she wants her boy home. What am I supposed to do in all this? I cried for 45 minutes and argued with God like, I don't want to do this. He began to tell me my mission. You do not have control over this forgiveness. You cannot stop it and start it when you want to. I gave it to you and you have more work to do. I was working at the time taking care of an elderly man and admit it in the, I would stay overnights. I would stay live-in there for three nights. I start watching Gangland, and all of these things would come up on the TV. And it was showing me inside of prisons and what happens in the prisons. And I found myself, this is in 2009, I found myself crying and praying for Raymond Johnson and Paul Littlejohn. I'm like, God, this just feels weird. And I just would pray and cry for them. Is this how they're living in prison? And every night, the History Channel was talking about inside of prisons. And God, it just kept pressing on me. And I'm praying and crying for these guys. And I'm like, okay, God. And I begin to start yielding. I begin to start yielding. And you okay? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> And I had heard about this thing called restorative justice. And I said, okay, God, I was at the peak of my healing. I had done all, my, all of my process. I had done my gang prevention. I was doing pretty good. And, but there was something missing. And so I said, maybe I'll try this restorative justice thing. So I put in a request to sit down at the table with the main shooter at the Department of Corrections. This is where I got my first taste of, of a legislation because it took three years for us to pass the bill to be, to be able to set in the Department of Corrections at Lyman Correctional Facility and have a dialogue with your offender. When we went to the Department of Corrections, there was a stack of 600 requests from victim families that wanted to confront the victim, confront their offender. And I was like, wow, what is this? So we took three years of working, trying to find out how to do this. And what ended up happening is, while I was working with Pete Lee, he became a state representative. And the first bill he designed was to make restorative justice law in the state of Colorado so that we can get this done. And sure enough, there I sat testifying before, at a hearing before the chairman, and we passed the bill. And restorative justice became law in 2012. That was my first taste of legislation and the power you have with your voice. 
as someone that has faced hardship and how you could be influential with changing laws and matters that concern you. There we were, Hickenlooper signing it into law. What a great feat. Now we were able to get a pilot program in the Department of Corrections. May 23rd, 2012, I sat across the table from Raymond Johnson. My surviving son, Calvin, sat beside me. And it was six of us that sat at that table. Raymond Johnson, his support person. Lynn Lee, the state representative's wife, which was, which is, was and is a restorative justice guru in Colorado Springs. And they sat there with us and coached us. It was a six-month process before we actually sat down in the presence of Raymond Johnson. There we sat, eight-hour dialogue, going through, unfolding everything. And when you do restorative justice, the victim family is the one that pretty much calls the shots. If you want it to be a table in front of you, not a table, flowers in the room, tablecloth, what do you want to say to this person? So there was three things I wanted to tell Raymond Johnson. That was how forgiveness came about through the love of Christ. Then I wanted to tell him the harm he caused, the pain he caused, me and my family, and then how he disrupted community with his actions. So those are the three things I wanted to share with him. So we pre prepared that. I wanted to tell him to his face how forgiveness looks and to his face that I forgive him because he had heard over the years. He had heard over the years. So let me get to the point here because I can stay up here all day and talk. So let me get to the, the meat of things. We talked for eight hours. When I first walked in, I froze at the door. And when I froze at the door, Calvin's on one side and Lynn's on the other. I couldn't move. Raymond is sitting in the room. When I looked at him, he stood up and he dropped his head. When he stood, he respected me. And when he dropped his head, he understood my pain. And that's what gave me my movement to walk into that room and talk to him. When I told him, want to go to mommy? When I told him that he, I introduced myself to him. The first thing he did was put his hand on his chest and said, I messed up. And he began to cry uncontrollably. Now he had lived his life, he qualified for this restorative justice dialogue because after four years of his incarceration, he started doing really well in prison. So he had qualified. There was three qualifiers for restorative justice dialogue. Remorse, a willingness to repair the harm, and accountability. And he had all three, he qualified. So now, we went through the dialogue. In 09, Raymond Johnson, by way of church people, he sent me a card, a Mother's Day card in 09. In this Mother's Day card, he asked me, would you be my mother? He asked me, would I help him get out? And he had three character reference letters. 
And my first thoughts was, how could I be his mother? I'm Kason and Calvin's mom. I could not respond. We sat in this dialogue in 2012 and went through the process. We had two breaks. We went through the process. Calvin let the facilitators know, I'm not here for forgiveness such as my mom, but I do have compassion for him because he could be, I could be him. When we went through the dialogue, I sat there and I told Raymond, do you remember you sent me a card and you asked me would I be your mother? He said, yes, I do. I said, I could not answer you then. I said, but I'm answering you today. And yes, I will be your mother. And he said, he was speechless, but then he said, thank you. And Calvin looks at him and says, you are the man that I prayed for you to be, and I accept you as my brother. That was my miracle. <laughs> that was my miracle. Calvin's not a man of many words. <laughs> and he said that in there, and that was my miracle. It was profound. The Holy Spirit was present. I accepted Raymond Johnson as my son. Calvin accepted him as his brother. And we supported him for 10 years, putting money on his books, receiving his calls. We weren't able to see him or visit him anymore. But we had the contact. Two more things I want to cover, and I'm going to close. When I began 2009 in... Um, going and finding out about the restorative justice process. I start doing legislation at the U.S. Supreme Court level. I connected with an organization called Campaign for Fair Sentencing of Youth, and they would fly me out to D.C. two, three times a year and teach me how to do lobbying for the causes of juveniles they were sentenced to life without parole. For 10 years, we advocated and did lobbying at the US Supreme Court to change the laws nationally for juveniles not to spend the rest of their lives in prison. The work became intense. We had to do it at a local level. Once we accomplished it at a state level, at a national level, we did this between 2012 and 2008. 16. We got it retroactive here in the state. We worked with the Colorado Supreme Court and we were able to change that law nationally. It was, it was intense and it was such a great victory. This changed the laws and the, and the trajectory of juvenile lifers. They all were able to be resentenced as kids and their sentence changed. So once we did it retroactive, we were able to get Paul and Raymond back into the court. And so I was able to testify 
on their case locally and gave them an ultimatum of going to programs. So Raymond went through a program for a three-year program. Once that program was over with, it was all written in the bill for them to complete this program uh, called a JCAT program. Raymond completed that last year. Raymond was released from prison after doing 26 years. He was released November 29th, uh, 2021. He's been out for five months and uh, he's doing great. <laughs> I think, yeah, that stands for a round of applause. Glory be to God. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. So Raymond is my son. Raymond is Calvin's brother. <laughs> Raymond comes and takes out my trash. We have dinner together, him and Calvin and I. And I thank God for he's more than what I expected. He, is call, he calls me every morning, every noon, and every night. <laughs> and he checks in with me, and he holds himself accountable. And he's just, he's just quite the gentleman. He's quite the gentleman. And uh, so I'm a proud mom. And uh, I got two wonderful sons. Thank you. And a beautiful grandbaby and a wonderful daughter-in-law that I love. said uh, forgiveness equipped you yes, like sir. hit me I think we think forgiveness is something we have to do because we're Christians and we talk about the maybe the releasing nature of forgiveness but I've never heard forgiveness equipped me to move because God had you move through multiple stages uh, and said, this is not enough. I want you to go all the way. Yes. And you become a voice. What does it feel like for forgiveness to equip you? It's, it's, it's the miracle of grace. Pause real quick. How many in this room right now are struggling with somebody that you can't quite forgive yet or you don't feel like you're totally through the journey? Only 10 people? Raise your hand real high if you struggle with somebody, okay? God brought to your mind. How, do, how could forgiveness equip them? Hmm. There has to be a willingness. And when I received that, when I said yes to God concerning the forgiveness, then he began to walk me through. So... He, gave, he, he quit me with it. He gave it to me. But it's just like healing. If, you're, if, you, if God tells you you're healed, but you yet have pain, you have to believe that. And you have to nurture it. And so that's the way forgiveness is. 
it was there. There was, there was nothing there that I would hold against him because he, God had given me forgiveness toward him. So it was like he gave me no pain. He gave me no harm. When I look at him and when I interact with him, I'm absent from what he's done to me. God throws our sins into the sea of forgetfulness. He said he separates our iniquity as far as the east is from the west. He also tells us he does not remember or regard our iniquities. So he forgets. So when people say, I forgive, but I can't forget, you're still in the flesh. Mm. Amen. You know, I don't, I don't like hearing that, but I don't feel like I can say it, right? It's like, okay, if uh, the... Yeah, yeah, I said, I don't like hearing it. Yeah, and, and my Facebook friends don't either. They don't, like <laughs> they don't like it. I said, what is this? I, I got one like on this statement. What's going on? <laughs> so something tells me, Calvin, this has hit you pretty hard, pretty deep. You're a man of few words, but you want to say something? You sure? <laughs> Thanks for going on the journey with your mom. I mean, yes. from 1995 to yes. now, because, you know, I've seen families split apart because they take opposite views mm -hmm, mm -hmm. on this, right? For you to walk alongside her and strengthen yes. her. Yes. Let's give Calvin a hand. Amen. Amen. I couldn't have done it without him. I could not have done it without him. And who is this right here? This is, <laughs> what's your name? Zipporah. 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 <laughs> this is Zipporah Isabella Hurd. <laughs> this is my grandbaby. I just think what it would be like, the environment that she'll be raised in, in a home with a heart of forgiveness as opposed mm. to a heart of bitterness mm. will be multi-generational in its impact. Right? Mm. Amen. So we thank God for that picture. Amen. Amen. Come on, sit up here. Almost nothing this morning in our service planning and in all of this and your granddaughter coming to your lap was planned. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. But I think God wove together a story um, for us today.